0: Attention.
1: It's time to register for elusian Live 2024, April 7th through 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Illuminate, innovate, inspire, explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. Register now at com. This conference is going to be epic. By now, you've heard me talk about Insights EDU in Phoenix, Arizona, February 20 through 22nd. Here's why I think you should join us at the Insights EDU conference. It's one of the few conferences focused on helping schools serve today's online and non-traditional students. If you're concerned at all about where your enrollments are going to come from in 2024 and beyond, and you should be concerned. You need to be at this conference register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EdUp up to save $50. Prepare to be astonished.
2: Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp up experience podcast, where we make education, your business. This is Elvin Freitas co-founder of the ed up experience and before I get into it with my guests, let me just say thank you all of you who have signed up for our email list. Go to our website edupexperience.com to learn more about all of the seven, almost eight, probably when this is out, it's going to be over 800 episodes and all the different guests we've had on, our commencement, the book, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education that was written with Kate Colbert, Dr. Joe Solucio, and contributions by Ovin Fertes and Get on our email list. Please get on our email list and let and we'll let you know where we're going to pack podcast live because we're going, as hopefully you know, to different places to podcast live, which is a lot of fun. Uh, edupexperience.com. Okay, great. Now let's get to it. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Opperman, and she is the co-founder of Helios Education Lab. Amanda, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and it's super cool just for context so the audience know knows, we have been connected via LinkedIn for a long time. I can't remember. it's been a while and yeah yeah, it's good to, to have you on the podcast and um, nice to, to meet you, right? Uh, not in person, but you know virtually. And, and to learn more about Helio's education lab. So please, Amanda, what is Helio's education lab? So
0: this is a a fairly new venture on my part, because as you know, since we've been connected for a few years now, most recently, I was in higher ed as an administrator. Mm -hmm. I was a vice president of marketing and admissions. And I was really, you know, leading departments working deep inside universities. And I had a very straightforward administrative role. But through COVID actually, and even through some of the people that you and I connected with over LinkedIn and our, our LinkedIn groups, Mm -hmm. I started picking up consulting work and it was just happening organically and I loved it and it was really going well. So I leaned into it really hard and I, I made a big, a big decision to actually pivot away from being an administrator and start this venture and have my own consulting firm. And it's been amazing. We do marketing and enrollment consulting for colleges and universities because that's my background and my partner's background. And then more recently, we're really leaning in hard to providing IT consulting to organizations, including educational entities and even government entities because their structures are very different in how they do procurement and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is providing IT consulting for those types of organizations that need digital transformation. Yeah,
2: so that's Helios and that's me. Okay, awesome. I appreciate the context. So the reason why we're on the call today is because I put out a post and I wanted to talk to someone who had experience working with RFPs, otherwise known as we crest for Proposal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Obviously, I just started working with this. So and I'm sure that there's tons of people who are listening who want to learn more. Requests for proposals. First of all, tell us about how you got into that world. Maybe, I mean, I got tons of questions. So I'm gonna try to <laughs> one by one. I mean, what is the RFP? What is it all about? How did you get into that world? Let's start there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a part of the RFP process from both sides. I've been the vendor or the partner who's trying to put out a bid and win the RFP. Yeah, And then during my years as an administrator at colleges and universities out in California, I was the one who was putting out the RFP and then looking at the bids that came in. Mm -hmm. So I've been on both sides of it and the RFP process, like if we just look at it at its core, what, what it's intended to do, it was designed for any publicly funded entity, whether that's an educational institution or a government institution, sometimes even a nonprofit. But mm-hmm. any publicly funded entity needs to go through this process because it provides transparency, fair competition, accountability in their procurement activities because being publicly funded means they're spending taxpayers dollars yeah and the Mm -hmm. rfp process is designed to protect and make sure that the taxpayers dollars are being spent responsibly and i know so many colleges and universities these days we are choosing to operate like businesses from like an operational standpoint or an efficiency standpoint But for any school that is taking Title IV funds or other public funds, behind the scenes, they are still a publicly funded entity, even though they might be operating like a business in some areas. So that's why the vast majority of schools that you work with or that you work for,
2: they're going to require an RFP process. Gotcha. That. By the way, you're so eloquent. I love the way you talk. I mean, that's, that's great. (laughs) It just helps me, you know, I I really appreciate that. So I want to know, let's start on when you are preparing an RFP to ask for bidders, I guess, right? When you're working at a university, college or public funding, funded institution. Yeah. How does that process work? I mean, is it something that, you know, a supervisor says, okay, we need this service. We need we have a problem. We have a challenge, right? And we need uh, a solution. So let's put together an RFP uh, so that way we can get bidders and figure out who's going to be the best vendor that's going to provide the best solution for our challenge. Is, how does it all work?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's kind of like the letter of the law and the oh. the spirit of the law. And then the <laughs> way it happens is kind of in between. So I'll, I'll share it all. Nice, so, okay. In the most, you know, like perfect ideal world, the the letter of the law, um, somebody inside the the university is supposed to say, oh, we need X Y Z to get our job done, or we need such and such resource to get our job done. We don't have it in house. It's not cost effective to do it in house, so we're mm-hmm. going to have to procure this from some mm-hmm. external partner. Yeah, and in theory they would sit down like in a in a vacuum almost and write down here's exactly what we need here's exactly what we're looking for then they would post it and anybody and everybody who thinks they can meet that need they have their chance to submit their proposal and compete for that business mm-hmm. so that's how it would supposed supposed to work in the the most <laughs> i don't know pure world yeah but you know what's happened over the years is, some people don't really like how long it can take to go through the whole RFP process. Yes. And even though it was designed with this really pure intention of protecting you know, public funds, sometimes the people inside the university, they're like, hey, this is making it hard for me to get my job done because I actually already know a partner who can do this yes. for me. Exactly. And I'm having yeah. to now, yeah, I'm having to now sit down and go through the motions or go through these hoops mm-hmm. and make all of these other co- people compete for this business. When I actually already know this company is going to provide me with the best solution. They're going to give me the best cost. And yeah. I'm going to feel really confident about the outcomes that it's going to get me. I feel very confident and comfortable that I'm spending public money on this. Mm-hmm. So what has happened in a lot of places is is people kind of find loopholes, so to speak. They'll start to design an RFP with a specific vendor in mind. Ah, okay, gotcha. That's not how it's really supposed to go, but, yeah. you know, I have seen it happen that way before. Mm-hmm. So you'll have companies who will bid on it and they might not even have a fighting chance at all, because Mm. while the RFP was being written, it was actually being written with a very specific vendor in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's ways that you can look through an RFP to try and detect if that's what's happening. Mm. And this is where, so like my experience competing for business, I, I learned some of this the hard way. Yeah. If you see something like, oh, the partner's office needs to be such and such miles away from the school. (laughs) Or if you see just incredibly detailed specifications, (laughs) it's a little bit of like, ding, ding, ding. This may have already been written for someone else. And if you have your team spend time and resources putting together a proposal, it's Mm. almost, this is so sad to say, it would almost be like a waste of time because there's already a, a, top choice in mind
2: yes yes no so, so this is good stuff i love this <laughs> it's so, so okay here's the question though let's say yeah. the team gets together in an institution and they're putting this bit together they they maybe they do have someone in mind maybe they don't yeah. how long is that process and then what what are they thinking that they want to get you know when they when people are responding to them do they want, cause I, I've heard different things. I've heard, do they want a story or oh, you got to write a story? You know, is that what they want? Is it, when yeah. you're you know, reading these bids, cause it's a lot, it's a lot of information. Yes. It's, a, it's very dense. And so do they want, do you want, you're sitting there and you're reading these bids, right? Do you want to read a story or do you just want the answer is yes, no, yes, no, the link here, you know, tell, tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: when I was the person writing the RFP with my team, There's definitely like an art to it. Yes. yes. And some people have got it down because they've been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. If you've got someone who's really good at writing the RFP, they're going to give really specific questions, really specific kind of like specifications. So then the company who wants to bid on it, they could read that checklist and say, ah, here's exactly what they want to know from me. I don't got to waste my time with anything else. I'm just going to tell them exactly what they want to hear almost yeah. like when you're applying to school or something and you have to fill out the application. Mm-hmm. So if they have a question like the background of the company, is the mission of the company aligned with the mission of the school or what are the values and do the values match with the values of the school? That's a place where it can give you room to tell some some story. Ah, okay. um, but the other questions, if they're written, you know, clearly and effectively what they're really going to want to know is how can you help me achieve xyz mm. and how can you achieve me better achieve it for me better than if i had done it in house because again yes. the reason they're doing the rfp is because they're choosing to not do something in house
2: mm. good point
0: so there can be some room to tell do some storytelling mm. but if a team is reading through tons of rfps they're yeah. not going to want to spend a whole lot of time with really flowery stuff. They're going to care <laughs> about the parts of the story yeah. that really match with their needs. Because at the end of the day, it's all about getting their
2: needs met. Mm. Now, how long does this process take for them to create an RFP to put it out there in the world? I mean, it, it's, are we talking weeks, months? What are we talking? Oh, it really depends on the organization. Mm. So
0: in an ideal world... You can get, you know, you can request from your procurement office that you need to put something out to bid, you can write your RFP, and then they can post it for you in in a few weeks. But Very like you know specific to each organization. Some places just have more red tape. Some places just have more you know internal channels of things to navigate, like 400 forms for something. That's a a part of university world and government world sometimes. So it can it can take a a pretty long time if you've got an organization with a lot of red tape, and that goes back to you know why some people will start to resort. To like finding the loopholes in the, the mm. system because gotcha. they're trying to speed things up they want to get a solution really fast they've got okay. some boss or some team who's like hey we need this from you yeah. and the rfp can actually be seen as, as slowing it down so mm-hmm. it can take weeks or months if you've got a university for example where there's lots of layers of approval yeah. where maybe your school is part of a a graduate school. And there's a lot of different graduate programs in the graduate school. And all of those graduate programs all have RFPs and they have to go up to the grad school level. Then the grad school is part of a larger campus that has Mm -hmm. tons of different schools. And if there's lots of layers of approval, Mm. it can take a long time but again, this is just super unique to each place. Maybe mm-hmm. you know someone who's worked there for a really long time and you work internally to kind of get yours through faster.
2: Yeah,
0: There's definitely people who have been inside the system a long time and they've figured out the way to navigate things through it a little faster.
1: Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. For a third straight year, the Edup Experience will be recording live at Illusion Live 2024. This year in San Antonio, Texas, April 7th through the 10th, Illuminate, Innovate, and Inspire. That's the framework for the conference. Leaders from institutions around the world will converge at Elucian Live 2024 to discover game-changing technology, share industry insights, and build powerful connections. It's time to explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future-ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. You can register now at elive.elucian.com. Epic. Oh, yeah, you've heard me talk about the Insights EDU conference. Well, let me tell you three reasons why I think everyone listening should join us in Phoenix, Arizona on February 20 through 22nd for Insights EDU. One, it's one of the few conferences focused on helping schools serve today's online and non-traditional students. Two, you can expect a mix of speakers you won't hear anywhere else, including higher ed leaders from Google, LinkedIn, Adobe and more. And reason three, Insights EDU has an agenda packed with sessions discussing the latest trends in higher ed leadership, marketing, and enrollment management. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. That makes, that that helps. And so when this group, because I'm assuming it's always a group, I'm assuming it's always a group of people that maybe there's like a, I don't know if it's like a admissions, you know how they have like that first reader and then they're going to yeah. have a little group and the admissions group. And then the first reader makes this, a second reader. And then there's someone who presents to the group and um, on the applicant. So is it similar in terms of the, the bidding process when they get all the bids and they're sourcing through and then they, what's that process like, right? Once they come in and you know what also I noticed too, yeah. I noticed that when they you say they post it out in the world, they, they post it out to a lot of websites where you have to either pay to be able to see the mm-hmm. bid, right? You have to yeah. pay the, like a membership to see the, it's not like it's out there for free. I mean, unless I'm, I'm seeing things wrong, but Oh, sorry, man. There's just so much there. It's just not so many questions, Yeah. but let, yeah. let's go, just go back to, okay. Once the bid comes in, what does that process look like? You know, and, and the group is the committee or whatever has it, which I don't believe in committees, but the group has it. And yeah. they to figure out how do we get all through all of these bids? Mm-hmm. Are there any like red flags like well? Let's put this this one's not gonna make it to the next pile. You know, tell us about your experience. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think I can even weave it in with the other part of your question about <laughs> those paid platforms. Yeah. So there's lots of places where schools can post their RFPs. They can post it straight on their website. Yeah. They don't have to use one of those platforms. Yeah. So If you do see an RFP on a platform where you have to pay, that can already be a little bit of a a signal where it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, they're not trying to get this out there. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) They're not trying to have everybody in the world see it or else they would have put it in a more free public forum. So maybe there's some other preferred vendor they already. Yeah. Oh, I love that insight. Thank Uh, you.
2: Okay, got yeah.
0: It. And then another thing is if you see in the RFP, if it says something like you've got 10 days respond or you've got five He's days respond, that, yeah. that can also be another hint no. where it's like, oh, okay, there might be some preferred <laughs> vendor out there yeah. who maybe got even it. helped them write the RFP a little bit, which wow. again, it's not supposed to happen that way. But sometimes yeah. I've seen it out there in the world that it does happen that way. Mm -hmm. So you'd be like, Oh, it feels impossible to get an RFP done in that amount of time. And it's like, yeah, they wanted it to feel impossible because there's someone else waiting in the wings who already has it pre-written. Yep.
2: Yep. Got it. Yep. That's great. Keep going. going. Yeah.
0: I love it. (laughs) But, but then the way it goes when they're actually getting submitted again, this is so unique to each, each school at the end of the day, it might be one person. It could be a director, it could be a vice chancellor, it could be one person who sits down and just reads through them all. And then depending on what kind of structure they have above them, Mm -hmm. maybe they just tell their manager, here's the one I chose and here's why. And the manager says, great, go for it. Or it might be something a little more formal where they sit down and make a presentation to a group of people and say, here's the top three. It's very unique. To each institution so for me the way that i saw it happen when i was working at universities i had trust with the person that i was reporting to and they would say hey the next time we do our weekly one-on-one you know tell me your top couple of choices and tell me which one you recommend and just verbally in our next one-on-one, I would share it with them and they'd say, great, go for it. Put it into your budget. And that was it. Wow. And then I would choose on my team, you know, my couple, three most core people that I, I would go to cause I really trusted their opinions or I relied on them. You know, I would maybe share it with them and get their feedback as well. So it was just a pretty small group internally And then the rest of the paperwork, it would navigate its way through different channels, but the channels were a little bit of a formality, really, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there's there's not as much like a pomp and circumstance that you might imagine where it's like, hey, let's all sit down together as a Mm -hmm. group. Let's all read these proposals together. Let's pick the top ones. And now we're going to make a presentation for the group above us. Yeah. In in the majority of environments that I've worked in, it's never that involved because these people are trying to get so much done yeah, and is. they're already feeling slightly burdened by the RFP process that they're trying to make it go as fast as possible. Yeah. And again, I know that's probably a little bit of bad news because that's <laughs> not the exact way that it was designed to be. But, you know, just reality comes into play and that's kind of what it has become. Yeah.
2: Wow, this is fascinating. So are there any red flags that bidders should be aware of when they're putting their RFPs together saying, don't do this. Nobody, when you're receiving these, and right, we're reading it. We don't want this on the RFP. Please don't do that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anything that is not like directly tied to a question or a bullet point in the RFP itself, if you can't make like a direct line to it, leave it out. Because it's going to be seen as like extra fluff. Uh Really? Yeah. When they write the RFP, they're basically saying, here's my needs. Here's what I want to see from you. Just show me what I want to see only. If they want, quote unquote, extra fluff, maybe they'll put a question at the bottom that says, you know, please include anything else that you think would be relevant. And maybe they'll, maybe they'll glance at it. But really use their RFP to a T. If they say we're looking for X, Y, Z, every single thing in your proposal should directly tie to X, Y, Z. And I mean, even make that like the headings, you know, the headings in your RFP, say in this RFP, we're going to touch on X, Y, Z, chunk number one, X, chunk number two, Y, and just make it super tight right to what the RFP asked for.
2: Okay, got it. And so- one thing I've noticed is that sometimes they have a lot of yes no questions. So, mm-hmm. so is the best practice to say yes and then provide a description, or is it just to say yes, or or provide a link if they want to learn more? And and what, what you know, when do you provide links? Because obviously, there's so much that is on the website of a company. There's it's a, a bidder, right? It's easy for. Yeah. For the bidder to say, look, it, dude, we got everything on our website. Just here's the link to that. Here's the link. To, you want X, Y, Z. Here's a link to X. Here's a link to Y. Here's a link to Z. Yeah. You know? It's like the easiest thing to do. But I, I'm just curious, reading that, is that is that something you think that is is a good practice? Is saying, so yes, no question. Yes. And then if you want more information, here's the link or just yes and moving on.
0: I would do yes. Followed by maybe like a one sentence, super, super brief backup as to why the answer is yes. And then you can also add a link, but like you had said, it's so easy to just put in a link. It's easy for the vendor. But -hmm. then what it does is it puts a burden on the person reading the proposal. It puts the burden on them to go Mm -hmm. click a link to a website. And that website was not designed for them to read right? Mm -hmm. The website was designed for anyone in the world who goes to that website to read it. Mm -hmm. So what that does is it kind of makes it seem like the vendor is more in it for what's easy for them and just mm-hmm. says, hey, look at our website. You could figure it out. Nah. And from the point of view of the person who made the RFP, they're like, hey, if I wanted to just choose something by reading a website, I wouldn't have gone through the process of making this RFP. You know what I mean? Like mm. the RFP is the chance for you to show me what you can do and show me how you're catered to my needs and show me how you'll meet you know the outcomes that I'm trying to seek. Don't give me just one generic website link that's meant for anyone in the world. I need something very
2: specified to my needs. Interesting. That's really good insight. So are there any other things uh, during your experience that you can think of that people need to know about this whole RFP process that we haven't covered yet? I mean, I I feel like we covered a lot, which is great. A lot of good insights. So is there anything else that you can think of?
0: Yeah, something that can be really helpful to the the universities. It's a huge time saver. Yeah. They can see if the state that they operate in, if their state has any kind of cooperative procurement contracts. Ooh, what's that? And so, yeah, these are so helpful. So there are groups or entities out there cooperative purchasing organizations. What they do is they actually facilitate government procurement for public agencies, educational institutions, nonprofit organizations. Some examples are Omnia Partners or SourceWell. So these cooperative purchasing organizations, they will actually put together massive lists of pre-approved vendors and pricing Mm. that any publicly funded institution can go to and pick off of that list. And the way they do it, the the purchasing organizations, what they do is they they leverage the collective buying power of all of the groups that are in their membership. So if you're a school, if you're a government entity, you can... Sp- pay like a small membership fee to -hmm. be part of these cooperatives. And what it does is it gives you access to these cooperative contracts and it helps you avoid the RFP process entirely. Because yeah, what these cooperative contracts have already done is they've already negotiated with the different member groups and gotten down to the lowest price that they can that that would be approved by the state Mm -hmm. and it does the same thing as the rfp at the end of the day it protects the taxpayers dollars and they can feel good about all right these taxpayers dollars are being spent in a responsible way they're being you know, we're only going to pay XYZ price for such and such thing, because it was already pre-negotiated by Mm. this purchasing organization on behalf of the collective membership. And in that membership would be the colleges, the universities, the government entities, etc. And there's a, a group called NASPO, the National Association of State Procurement Officials, They've actually put together some pricing lists, some pre-approved pricing lists. And what some of these cooperative purchasing organizations do is they'll just negotiate directly and say, you have to meet the NASPO price. Mm. If you meet the NASPO price, you can be part of this cooperative contract. And these government institutions or these educations, they'll be able to buy directly from you with less red tape so long as you always meet these NASPO prices. So that's very helpful to the school because they could say, hey, let's leverage this cooperative contract. Let's, you know, become an Omnia member or let's become a SourceWell member. And now we're going to be able to go straight to this contract list and see anybody who's on it, know they're pre-approved, and it's going to save them the time of having to go through the RFP. Then. For the vendor as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You can go through the process of getting on that list and what the it it changes the conversation. So now, if you're a vendor, instead of going around and trying to bid on all these RFPs, what you do is you get yourself onto the cooperative contract because you guarantee that you'll always meet the NASPO prices, for example, or Mm -hmm. whatever prices they have have Mm pre-approved. You say that you will always offer your services at those prices. And then you just reach out to anybody that you want to do business with and say, hey, do you purchase off of the cooperative agreement? Oh, great. We're already on that. So guess what? You don't even have to go to RFP if you don't want to.
2: Mm, Interesting. So the vendors have to pay a membership fee as well? Is that part of it? Ah, gotcha. And so I noticed that there's a lot of emphasis now on minority-owned businesses, especially to give them opportunities to be vendors right? Mm-hmm. And, and be a part of that mix. So are these cooperatives like reaching out? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> if you know, it's okay. I'm just curious. Do you think mm-hmm. they're reaching out to these minority owned businesses? Hey, you got to get into our cooperative so we can get you an advantage here. So you can have an opportunity to have tons of possible clients look at your services or your products.
0: Not that I'm aware of.
2: Yeah. Okay. I've,
0: I've, I've not seen like any type of outreach to yeah. anyone. Yeah. Um, so if a vendor wants to get on one of these cooperative contracts, it's mm-hmm. really on them to choose yeah. to do it. Yeah. So they would look at the different cooperative purchasing organizations that are out there. Mm-hmm. And then each one of those organizations has eligibility criteria. And then, you know, if you meet the criteria, you can go through their application process It reminds me a little bit of what I went through when I was trying to do like accreditation work for schools. Like, oh, I need to get this program accredited, or I need to maintain accreditation for this school. And you have to go to information sessions and you have to learn about their standards and then (laughs) you have to prove to them that you meet their standards. Uh So it's a little bit similar where you're like, okay, let me see, does my organization meet the eligibility standards of this cooperative purchasing organization. Mm -hmm. And if so, there's a lot of things that I'm gonna have to do to apply in the beginning and then show them over time that I'm still meeting all of their standards. And as long as I do that, I will always remain on their list. And the outreach I've actually seen happen more often is if a vendor gets themselves on this cooperative contract they'll start doing outreach to their current clients and their prospective clients to teach them about the cooperative contract mm-hmm. but these organizations that are these cooperative purchasing organizations they're you know they're not doing big marketing or big outreach yeah. or anything like that they're just kind of yeah. like hey we exist and if you find out about us good for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and that's a, a I don't know, I guess a blessing and a curse because one it's like, well, Hey, you know, now this becomes like, well, what if I wanted access to that? And what if I wanted that advantage for my company? You know, how am I supposed to find out about these things? But then the other side of it is because they are representing publicly funded institutions and they're trying to operate themselves. Like they are, they're nonprofit institutions. They're not spending a lot of their dollars on marketing and outreach So yeah, it's a double, double double-edged sword.
2: Yeah. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. You know, this has been so cool. Just, just amazing. I'm just mind blown by everything you you have um, talked about today. And and thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, You know, we usually ask everyone, what do you see as the future of higher education? And the last question. But I I thought maybe you would change it up a little bit. First of all, anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about today, about Helios, about, you know, RFP process, anything you think that we've missed at all that you want to say?
0: You know, I, whenever I get asked a question like this, I always want to fill it with something because I have the opportunity to speak and I don't want to waste it. But (laughs) But no, I, yeah, I think this yeah. is like a really thorough, good conversation. Yeah. I had a blast. I cannot think of anything else, But if I have the chance to speak a little more about what I'm doing with Helios Education Lab, I think one thing I can share is now that we're doing more of this i t consulting and helping colleges and universities through digital transformation. I'm getting more involved in cooperative contracts than I ever had before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because IT departments, I believe they are absolutely the wave of the future. Um, The IT department is going to become one of the most prominent influential departments at a school.
2: That's a really Um, good point. Very good point. Yeah,
0: Yeah. They're not necessarily going to be, you know, the person who, shows up and tells you to reboot your computer because it's, bro- you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. every single thing as we move forward yeah. is getting connected to technology. Yep. A lot of, of universities, they were set up, you know, decades ago or over a century ago, you know, mm-hmm. these universities were set up in days when this technology was not even yet like a dream, you know, no one is, mm-hmm. was even imagining The way that technology is these days so they don't have infrastructure yet they don't have budget yet they don't have even just like the wherewithal to think about the the large it operation that they need and so they are having to do a lot of outsourcing and they're having to do lots of project-based work and instead of having to write you know 50 rfps what they can do is just go straight to these cooperative contracts find the companies who do what they need and boom get things done faster yeah so Mm -hmm. yes i've been doing more work in digital transformation i've really been using these cooperative contracts more and they're they're great
2: wow that's that's fantastic this what a huge takeaway that is by the way i i love when i learn something and it makes me go oh yeah that makes total sense so the it department because back in the day when i went to college i mean it department yeah your email's messed up or <laughs> you want to get something printed out but you know it was the it guys there's always the it guys not anymore no way they're leading from the front now so i love that and it's just going to continue so that's such a great insight so amanda this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time i, I really appreciate it and let me outro you so ladies and gentlemen You've been listening to the amazing, the wonderful Dr. Amanda Opperman, and she is co-founder of Helios Education Lab. Amanda, where can people find you?
0: Find me on LinkedIn, the best <laughs> place in the world, or helio-education-lab.com. That's right. Excellent.
2: Excellent. Please. I highly recommend if you're listening to this, Please connect with Amanda and send this to someone who works with RFPs, please. <laughs> and say, you got to listen to this episode. This is good stuff. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just erupted. Attention.
1: It's time to register for Illusion live 2024, April 7th through 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Illuminate, innovate, Inspire. Explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future-ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. Register now at elive.elucian.com. This conference is going to be epic. Hey there, higher ed leaders. Are you thinking about joining the EdUp Experience podcast at Insights EDU on February 20th through 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona? 100%. I thought so. This is the go to event for higher education marketing and enrollment management. At Insights EDU, you'll gain cutting edge insights from industry experts, including speakers from companies like Google, LinkedIn, Adobe, Salesforce, and more. Become the transformational leader your campus needs by participating in discussions on important topics like online student demands and preferences, increasing affordability and accessibility, branding. Measuring marketing performance, and much more. Insights EDU is the conference you need to attend in 2024. Register now at insightsedu.com and use the code EDUP to save $50 off your registration.